James chapter 5, verses 7 to 20. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the Father waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wonder from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is God's word. This is going to be fun. A few issues in this passage, aren't there? Uh, if we're not met, my name's Phil. Uh, I'm the assistant minister, one of the assistant ministers here. It'd be lovely to meet you afterwards. Uh, we've been working through the book of James, and there is no avoiding this passage with uh, all the difficulties within it, but also uh, the wonderful promises it contains. So tonight, we're going to work our way through it and see if we can understand what God is promising us. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, thank you for passages like this that are uh, difficult. Uh, because they humble us. Father, we uh, thank you that we can only understand you if you reveal yourself to us. And so we pray that by your spirit you would enable us to understand your word and that the result would be that we would leave tonight with a deeper trust in you, a more confident assurance that you are good and of how you work in this world. Amen. Uh, Who here has prayed for someone to get better and has seen that prayer answered in a way which defied medical logic. Who here can put up a hand to that? A few. Who here has prayed for someone who is sick to get better and seen that prayer not answered? A lot is at stake as we study these verses together. In particular, our confidence in the power of prayer and the character of God. 
enormous harm is done if we misunderstand passages like this. Get this wrong and either we'll end up bitterly disappointed because we think God has failed to do what God promised or we'll end up with such a tiny view of God that you wonder why on earth would you even bother praying to him? He does nothing. So it's very important that we understand this passage. We need to be clear and confident in the character and the promises of God. Because otherwise, life's hurts and disappointments, and they will come to all of us, instead of driving us to God, will drive us away from him. So we must be clear about these things and understand what this passage is teaching. Now, two key things when we uh, come to difficult passages of the Bible, passages that we struggle to understand how, uh, what they mean or whether we can, how we fit them in with other passages. Now, the first thing to understand is that you can never interpret one bit of God's word in a way which contradicts another bit. Because God is 100% consistent, to use the theological language. His character is immutable. He never changes. So we've got to understand James 5 in a way which doesn't contradict any other passage of the Bible, which fits with what we read in the rest of Scripture. Second, equally, the words that God has spoken in Scripture are consistent with the world that God has spoken into being. The words God has spoken in Scripture are consistent with the world that he spoke into being. Both came about through him speaking. And so we need to understand these words in a way which fits with our experience of life as it's lived in this real world. Now we are going to focus really on verses 13 to 16, the heart of this passage. But we'll sweep through the rest of the passage, especially to, just to give us a context because it will help us ground us and hopefully help us understand these central verses correctly. So you've got an outline. Uh, We'll broadly stick to it, I think. Um, I'll let you know if we're going to deviate. And the first thing we see uh, from verses 7 to 12 is that faith that works is patient in suffering. Uh, James has been teaching us all about real, genuine Christian faith. As in not uh, hypocritical nonsense, but genuine faith. Faith that works. Faith that works not just on a Sunday, but faith that is lived out Monday to Saturday too. Faith that's for the real world, not just the Christian bubble. And again and again, the message of God through James has been a faith that works, a real, a genuine faith, holds on to Jesus through suffering. If we just uh, touch into uh, verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. He pictures the the struggling Christian, the suffering Christian, as as like a farmer. And he says, the farmer's patient because the farmer knows the seed has gone into the soil, so the farmer knows that eventually there'll be a harvest. If you're not a farmer, you you know, hangry, brilliant word, that combination of angry and that's driven by hunger. Uh, Once the the food's in the oven, you still feel hangry, but you know that there is an end in sight, that soon you will eat, unless it's some slow-cooked, pulled pork thing that's going to take 15 hours. But you know, if it's in the oven, I'm going to eat soon. The farmer knows if the seed's in the soil, then the harvest will come. The suffering Christian knows Jesus Christ rose from the dead and therefore he will surely come back. And therefore the suffering of this life has an end. 
It's not forever. It's not a continual cycle. It has an end because Jesus rose from the dead. And so those of us who are planted in him, who are trusting in Jesus, can be patient as we struggle because we have assurance that he will come back and bring us to paradise. Patient endurance is fundamental basic Christianity 1.1. It is, it is just normal Christianity. Because for all the beauty and fun in the world, there's an awful lot of brokenness and pain. And therefore, central to being a Christian is learning how to be patient in the suffering that will come. And in this passage, uh, the central suffering that he's going to look at, that we have to be, learn to be patient in, is a suffering that will come to us in spite of uh, the youth of most of us here and the medical provisions and the diet and everything else that we have, serious physical sickness. At some point, all of us will learn about it, even if it's not until late in our life. And it's important that we learn now how to handle it. And the first thing we're told is pray for healing when you are sick. So verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. When things are good, praise God. When things are bad, pray to God. Again, Christianity 1.1. But it's a message we need to hear because the truth is most of us around here, as I look around, are very, very competent people. We're well-resourced, we're capable. And so uh, those of us here who call ourselves Christians, if you're not a Christian and you ask them, actually, uh, the guilty secret of too many of us here is we'd probably say, prayer feels like a chore. It feels like a hard work thing I have to do rather than a lifeline. But the truth is that prayer is not our last resort, it is our first resource. To say to someone who is uh, really struggling and sick, you should pray. It's just like saying to someone who's about to jump out of an aeroplane, you should wear a parachute. (laughs) Prayer is the lifeline that links us to God's rescue and God's resources. It's the lifeline that links you to God's rescue and God's resources. And so whatever the struggle we're facing, if we're Christians, we'll pray. So when you're sick, you pray. And note that uh, prayer is not a sort of super spiritual alternative to going to the doctor or taking medicine. Doctors, nurses, and medicinal drugs are just as much a wonderful gift of God as is a miraculous healing. I remember uh, we had a missionary over for lunch when I was a kid, and Dad, was, uh, Dad had asked him. He, they, he lived in a, a pretty rough um, part of the world, uh, not many hospitals and resources. And he was a pretty sober, scientific sort of a guy, but he had story after story after story of miraculous healings. And uh, Dad said to him, look, why do you think we just don't see stuff like that here? Why do you think you see so much more of that out where you are? And he said, well... And does it, I mean, I think Dad actually asked him, "Why doesn't God give us the miraculous healings?" And, he's, and his answer, I remember, "God gave you the NHS. <laughs> God gave you the NHS. It's just as much a gift of God as a miraculous healing. All healing comes from God, however it takes place. So it's not an alternative to medical care that's being spoken about here, but it's saying, look, if there's serious sickness, serious ongoing sickness, someone's struck down, and from the, from the looks of it in this passage, given the elders have to go to them, they're probably not even, they're housebound, then it says, call the elders to pray. Call the elders to pray. 
Now we'll come on to uh, what on earth is going on with the prayer offered in faith and the prayer of the righteous man and some of those questions in a minute. But just three questions that jump out as we get started with this passage. Uh, Why the elders, why the oil, and why the confession? Why the elders, why the oil, and why the confession? Because you'll notice uh, um, if we carry on... uh, Verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So those are the sort of first three issues. Before we get into the healing stuff, why would you want elders? Why would you need oil? And why is the confession? Uh, Is it that the elders are more powerful? I don't mean physically powerful. If you've seen the elders at this church, we're not um, the most powerful looking bunch. But uh, it can't be right either that it means that they're more spiritually powerful. And we know that from this passage. If If you look on to verse 17. So verse 17 to 18 are explaining verses 13 to 16. Verses 13 to 16, uh, pray for people to be healed and, and God heals. Verse 17, Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain. As he talks about Elijah as one example of a man who saw extraordinary answers to prayer, he stresses how ordinary he is. He doesn't say in verse 17, Elijah, like the elders of the church, was a leader, a prophet among the people, which he could have said. He says he was a human being even as we are. So why then the elders? I think there are two reasons. Um, firstly, I think he does want the elders because, uh, as we'll see, these are complex spiritual issues. And it requires a little bit of wisdom. And so he just wants well-taught Christians. Because as they talk about sin and sickness, uh, the elders should be equipped to, to handle those things. But secondly, and perhaps more fundamentally, the elders are the leadership of the church. And so when he says the elders should come around and pray, it's basically saying the church should pray for them, represented by the elders. It would be a bit difficult to have the whole church gather, especially a church this size, and even more especially if you live in a London flat. You know, it would be logistically a little bit difficult, and having you know, 200 people squeeze into your room when you're struck down in your sickbed might be enough to tip you over the edge. But it's saying uh, the elders pray, as in the whole church, they represent the church, the church is praying for this person. The elders go, if you like, in the place of the church because the person can't come to church. And I think that means that uh, it doesn't have to be all the elders who go. Uh, the group should feel like it represents the church. So, and it needs to be mature. So I guess you might want an elder and maybe your midweek group. But it needs to be uh, a group who are spiritually mature uh, to talk about some sensitive things. And it needs to be a group you're comfortable having in your bedroom you're comfortable laying hands on you, praying for you, and you're comfortable bursting into tears with if the prayer that you, that you long to be answered isn't answered in the way you want. So why elders? I think because they're spiritually mature, but also because they represent the church. Why oil? Why is it anointed with oil? I mean, this is just weird. Why would you do that? In verse uh, 14, anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, some ailments were treated with oil. We read in the parable of the Good Samaritan that he pours oil and vinegar on the wounds of the, of the guy who'd been mugged on the road. Uh, it's not explained there, though. There's one other place in the New Testament, in Mark 6.13, we're told uh, that Jesus healed people and anointed them with oil as he did so. But the fact it's not explained shows that it was just a sort of normal practice, and I think it indicates that it was symbolic. 
You see, oil has a a symbolic place in the Bible. In the Old Testament, uh, three categories of people, prophets, priests, and kings, leaders of the people, the prophets, the priests, and the kings. And as they're commissioned by God to lead the people, oil is anointed on them. Um, And it's symbolic of the Holy Spirit empowering them for their ministry. So oil is poured on as a symbol that the Holy Spirit is anointing them for their ministry. So there's nothing magic. There's no healing power in the in the oil. So you know it's not as if Waitrose organic extra fine Dutchy reserve extra virgin olive oil will have more healing properties than you know your bog standard Tesco basic range vegetable oil. It's not in the oil. It's just symbolic of the Holy Spirit not anointing for leadership like the prophets, priests, and kings, but anointing for healing. And then finally, and this is where we get actually I think into the heart of the passage: why confession of sins? See, actually, it's interesting. James weaves together the language of physical sickness and spiritual sickness throughout the passage of health and sin throughout the passage. The word for sick in verse 13 usually means physical sickness, but it also means spiritual sickness, sin, sometimes in the Bible. The words for make well in verse 15 and for healed in verse 16 are both words that could also be translated saved. And it sometimes are used in the New Testament for people being forgiven their sins and saved by God. Why is that? Why should we, as the second point says, pray about sin when you're sick? Let's look again at the central verses uh, and see if we can work it out. Verse 14, is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, we've got to be very, very careful here. Very careful indeed. There is a relationship between sickness and sin. but we'll do horrible damage if we misunderstand it. Two truths. One, all sickness is the result of sin. Two, my sickness is probably not the result of sin. All sickness is the result of sin. Your sickness is probably not the result of your sin. So firstly, all sickness is the result of sin. There would be no sickness, disease, or death, or decay in the world if we humans hadn't rejected God. Have you seen Stephen Fry's now notorious um, rant on Irish television? He's asked this sort of genial question. So you're a famous atheist, and you rock up to the pearly gates, and they say, why should we let you in? And Stephen Fry just turns on him. says, Why? Bone cancer in children, what's that about? And he just unloads on this wicked God who would make such a horrible world where children suffer and die incurable illnesses. But what he totally fails to understand is that the Christian God he's attacking never claims this world is the way it should be. In fact, it's not God's fault the world is the way it is. The Bible is very, very clear that God made a good world, but when we turned away from him, we brought decay and death and disease into God's perfect world. So in that sense, in the macro sense, all sin, all sickness is a result of sin. Cancer is not God's fault. In other words, it's mine. 
But, truth to my sickness, your sickness, is probably not the result of my sin, your sin. Look, if I run a red light and get hit by a car, my broken ribs are a result of my sin. If you have an affair and you get a sexually transmitted infection, your disease is caused by your sin. But most of the time, that's just not how it works in this world. The Bible teaches again and again and again, we are not to conclude that the suffering I experience is a result of my sin. Uh, the 42 chapters of Job teach this again and again and again as, uh, as the lie is exposed that, Job, you must be a very sinful person to be suffering this badly. Jesus says explicitly in John 9 and Luke 13, you must not assume that because these people have suffered that they are sinful. The Hindu idea of karma is, is a lie. It's a lie and it is never taught in the Bible. Don't think, if I'm sick, I must be a sinner. And don't think, if I have great health, I must be right with God. Neither of those things is right. And yet, and yet the truth is, and I think it's the truth that drives this passage, if I'm honest, that we can't help but wonder. When I am diagnosed with cancer, or when they can't diagnose why it is that I'm just so run down that I can't carry on with work and it looks like I'm going to lose my job and no one in the doctors can even explain why and everybody else seems to be healthy and I am struck down, I cannot help but wonder, is it because of me? Is it something I've done? God, is this my fault somehow? Is my sin to blame for this? There's something in us that just goes there. And it's partly, I think, what C.S. Lewis famously said. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. Suffering is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I guess many of us will know it from our own lives. You know, we confess our sins week by week. And the sad truth is that sometimes the words just, they trot off our lips and they don't really, we don't feel any great burden of sin. We don't feel any great guilt and shame lifting as we confess to God. But then the interesting thing is when I'm struck down with physical illness, it's often that, that physical weakness that somehow humbles me and opens me to, uh, to see, well, sins that I've long ignored or suppressed. Or just the, the physical weakness just gives me a great sense of my spiritual weakness and my need for God. Again, the two truths remain, uh, especially the second truth. My sin is probably not the cause of my sickness. But somehow, when we are sick and struck down, we become much more sensitive to our spiritual state, to our sin and our need of God. And I wonder uh, too if this doesn't this section doesn't fit with another incident James probably witnessed I uh, with his own eyes, an incident that took place when his brother was still alive and walking around the world, his brother Jesus. In Mark two, uh, we read about an incident which also involves um, talk of sickness, physical and sin, spiritual, and that also seems to involve uh, healing in response to faith. 
It's a, the famous incident in Mark 2. There's a, a roof, probably not quite as high as this one, I'm thinking, and uh, a guy, I really hope not, because it would have been terrifying otherwise, a paralyzed guy with four friends, they dig through this roof and lower him down on a mat to Jesus, who's teaching a room full of people. And Jesus, we're told, he saw their faith, and he says to the guy with the paralyzed legs, your sins are forgiven. And Mark shows us Jesus... Jesus does the easy thing, that is healing his legs, to prove that he can do the difficult thing, that is forgive his sins. He does what they think is difficult to prove he's got the power to do what's really difficult, namely to forgive sins. And so the two come together quite often actually. Okay, step back. So what's going on here? What's going on here? So here I think of this, there's a couple of scenarios possible in James. I think uh, scenarios, this is what's going on. Somebody is struck down with sickness and scenario A, they just, uh, they just feel really weak and they wonder whether God loves them and they're, they're struggling with assurance and they feel really, really spiritually low. They're just finding it really difficult to cope with uh, the suffering that they're going through. Um, as we said in our confession even tonight, um, the sickness makes us prone to fear, to accuse, and to feel abandoned by God. And they're wobbling. And so they call the elders around to pray for them, for healing their sickness, and for help because they're feeling so spiritually, utterly weak. Scenario two. Uh, life's going fine, just carrying on, and there's a few things about my life that really aren't what right but la 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 just carry on carry on everything's good and there's a few things about my life that really aren't right but carry on and and then I'm struck down and bedridden and I really am in some weakness and trouble and it's as I feel so weak that my mind gets to think and I start to become aware of I've been really ignoring God I am playing with sin I'm not fighting and failing I'm just not even fighting and so I need, to, I need to front up and be honest with people at church about this. I'm asking to pray for my uh, healing because I'm struck down. But also I need to be open and honest that I have been playing God for a fool. And I've been sinning. And how wonderful. How wonderful when God uses sickness to show us sins that we've hidden deep inside. That are rotting our souls and leading us to death. How wonderful when the result is a confession and an openness before the church and restoration. Restored to a deeper relationship with God. And whether I'm physically healed or not, things are right with God. And I'm strengthened to carry on. I think that's what's going on here. Which then brings us to, if you like, the, the precipice of, okay, what do we say? Is physical miraculous healing being promised here in James? We know that there seems to be some sort of, uh, some physical and spiritual stuff going on. But is there a promise of physical healing? And the third thing I want us to see is that we should pray in, with faith in the God who heals. Because he is a God who can and does heal. We read, uh, Verse 15, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, before we decide whether this is a guy being healed of cancer or forgiven of sins, there's two very brief thorny issues we've got to 
just work out just to get there. Firstly, what's the prayer offered in faith? Given that verse 15, it works, I guess you'd like to know the answer. <laughs> be a useful thing to know. Uh, and secondly, related to that, who is the righteous person? Verse 16, again, their prayers seem to get answered. Useful information. Uh, the prayer of faith. Now notice first, it's not the faith of the sick person. It's the faith of those praying. Uh, there, was a, there was a girl who used to be here um, at CCM. I remember her telling me that um, her family would effectively driven out of their church at home because her mum was long-term sick. And the church had prayed for healing and she wasn't. And they said, your faith must be too weak. Or you must be hiding sin. And she was bullied and battered, basically, over the years and eventually had to leave the church. But here, actually, it's the church's faith, the elder's faith, not the sick person's faith. Uh, but he... Uh, there's not time to say everything. You could have a whole sermon really on what the prayer of faith is. I think, I think tentatively it's related to 1 Corinthians 12 verse 9, which talks about uh, the gift of faith. Now every Christian has faith, but it seems God sometimes gives a particular gift of faith. Now the truth is, in preparing for this sermon, I read a a whole stack of... um, of commentaries and listened to a number of sermons by um, by ministers and it was interesting there was a common theme in lots of them which is look uh, trying to live out James 5 which we we found hard to understand but we tried our best to, to, to obey God on it and so we'd go round and pray for sick people and quite often we would uh, pray for them and we'd see them greatly strengthened and their faith in God to hang on through the difficulties of physical illness deepened And we left and they were assured of God's love and they were just encouraged and built up. But physically they remained sick. And that's what normally seemed to happen when we went around to pray for them. But then, just sometimes, just sometimes we, as a group, we just felt God's going to do this. And it was as if we had the faith to pray for healing that we'd always asked for. But somehow we just felt we had the faith to it was going to happen this time. I, I don't know if that's exactly what's going on, but it seems to fit with the passage. And so many wise, sober, sensible people seem to share that experience that I guess that's where, I, um, where I'd land. So I think it's, it's not some weird sort of faith that you can learn uh, this technique of prayer and you'll be able to have all your prayers answered. I think it's a gift of God. That God sometimes chooses to give us faith to ask for things that aren't promised, but that he can do. Uh, it's in his hands. Remember, not ours. That brings us to the second question, the righteous person. Um, And again, uh, there's not time to spend too much on this. But again, he goes straight to Elijah, do you see, in verse 17. And as we saw, his point with Elijah is that he's ordinary. He doesn't say, verse 17, Elijah was just such a righteous man, greater than other ordinary followers of God in his day, and therefore able to do great things. He says he was a human being, even as we are. In other words, the righteous person is just an ordinary Christian in a good relationship with God. That's all. Just an ordinary Christian. The people who achieve extraordinary things through their prayers are people like you and me. That's what it means, the righteous person. Uh, I quite enjoy um, flying on planes. Not personally, I wish. Uh, But I quite enjoy flying on planes. Uh, I've never been a nervous flyer. It's just uh, just not something I just don't have enough imagination I think to, to know all the things that could possibly go wrong but I've flown with some properly nervous flyers you know the sort of you can sort of losing blood in your arm because every small sound <laughs> what's up what's up what's up what's up it's just the stewardess opening a can of drink on the trolley it's, it's nothing what's up what's up every noise is and just absolutely petrified 
Now for myself, I always check two things. I always have a good look at the plane, you know, two wings, good. It's not got propellers. I don't want to see propellers. I want, you know, okay, it looks clean. It looks nice. And I like to see the pilot. He needs to look sober. He needs to look older than me. And he needs to just look mature. I don't want to see a joker. I want to see somebody I can trust my hand. And so I'm quite happy when I'm sat with a nervous flight. It will be all right. It'll be fine. We'll get there. I promise you everything will be fine. I'm not relying on myself at that point. I'm relying on the plane and the pilot. And when as Christians we pray, we are not relying on ourselves and the strength of our faith. We're relying on Jesus Christ and his promises. He is our pilot and his promises are what carry us. And so we can pray, uh, not with the pressure on us, I've got to find enough faith, I've got to be righteous enough, but now I trust in God. Ordinary faith in an extraordinary God will achieve great things. Okay, so what can we expect to happen when we pray for sick people? Is it healing or is it forgiveness that's going on here? Well, the language, as we've seen, is ambiguous. It could be either, and it seems that both is being talked about at various points. Confess your sins, verse 16, to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. Verse 15, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. It's just, as we've seen, it seems to deliberately mix the two. Sometimes, the result of the elders' visit will be a miraculous physical healing. At other times, it will be spiritual renewal. Either strengthen to trust that God is good in spite of this trial. That he is with me and I can... I can I can keep trusting him in spite of the pain I'm going through. Or uh, confirmed an assurance of forgiveness of sins in spite of the fact that I've become aware that I have been indulging sin for a very long time and I feel very guilty and afraid. But, and this is so important, there is a different level of expectation. The rest of the Bible makes that 100% clear. If we're Bible-believing Christians and an amazing God, we will pray for people, whatever the problem they're facing. But we'll pray with different expectation depending on whether God has promised to do it or whether he's promised to sometimes do it. There is a difference between what God can be expected to do, what he said he'll always do, and what God can do because he's God and he can do whatever he likes. So we pray for physical healing knowing God can do it. But remembering he won't always do it in this age. And the Bible makes that clear. So 2 Timothy 4.20, we're told Paul, the great apostle, had to leave Trophimus sick at Miletus. Why didn't he just heal him? Seems he couldn't. Uh, we're told in, um, in Philippians chapter 2 that Paul was so desperately anxious about Epaphroditus's health that he had to send him back to Macedonia. Because it was just causing Paul stress and anxiety. Well, surely just heal him. Makes no sense that Trophimus would be left and Epaphroditus would be sent home if, you know, they just healed people. That's what apostles do. But the truth is, we're not promised that every disease will be healed if we're Christians. Some disease gets us all. You see, the Christians who teach that and who have taught down the centuries that as a Christian you have God's victory 
and you can heal every and any sickness in the name of the Lord. They all have one thing in common, all of those leaders. Other than that they're wrong, they have one thing in common, which is they all die, which shows that they're talking nonsense. Something gets them eventually. Something gets all of us eventually. It is clear from the Bible, and it's clear from the world that God has put us in and the life that we live, that perfect health is promised by God for the future, when Jesus returns, not for now. So we'll pray for people to be healed, knowing God can do it, but he can't be expected to always do it. We pray very, very differently for forgiveness because the Bible is full of promises that God always immediately, freely, fully forgives those who turn to him. Uh, 1 John 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And the Bible never nuances, never caveats those promises. And we'll pray differently for physical, uh, for spiritual strengthening when people are assailed with doubts that have come on because of their suffering. Philippians that we're looking at in the morning, Philippians 1 verse 6 assures us that God will bring to completion the work that he has begun in Christ Jesus. We will be mature one day. So as a church, we should pray for God to heal people who are sick, confident that our God is a God of life and blessing. And confident that one day, if you trust in Jesus, he will return and we'll join him for eternity in paradise. And sometimes, sometimes God gives us little foretastes of what is coming in the future with miraculous healing now. And when he does that, we should shout and jump and praise him from the rooftops. But the truth is we should also praise him from the rooftops when healing doesn't come, but sick, suffering Christians still display joy. And the patience that James has spoken of in the first part of this passage. Keeping going through pain and tears, clinging to Jesus and refusing to submit to the doubts that tell them that God is not good. Sadly, churches that are big on celebrating healing are often embarrassed by suffering saints. Which is tragic to be embarrassed by people who are patiently enduring as the Bible calls and bringing great honor and glory to God. As we close, note that even James teaches the need to keep our eyes on something greater than healing here and now. His last verse is, my brothers and sisters, verse 19, if one of you should wander from the truth, And someone should bring that person back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Even the most dramatic healing won't last more than about 80 years. But when someone is spiritually saved, putting their trust in Jesus Christ, or when someone who has wandered away in sin comes back to Jesus, they are saved for an eternity of perfect health and laughter and pleasure and adventure in God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we acknowledge we, we struggle to understand these words. We, we pray that you would give us confidence that you are a God who can do abundantly more than all we ask or imagine. We thank you that our life and our health is in your hands. 
We pray that we would be quick to praise you when we're healed, whether it's miraculously or through the ordinary means that you have marvelously provided for us. Medical care that most people around the world for most of history uh, could only dream of. We pray also, Father, that we would see the reality that eternity is stretching before us and that to be saved for eternity will matter so much more than whether we've had good health here. Father, help us to get the right balance in these things. Help us to honour you by trusting you where you promise, by praying as you call, and by loving and serving your people as this passage calls us to. Amen.